Welcome back in my world. What an incredible few days we've just had in Paris for SAS to Paris. And if you made it, I hope you had a blast. If you did not, I hope you get the chance to experience SAS to in person in San Francisco or in Paris next year. It really is very special. But back to the show. And this is the SAS podcast with me, Harry Stebbings. It'd be fantastic to see you behind the scenes on Instagram at hstebbings1996. And you can actually suggest questions for future episodes there. However, to the episode today, and to celebrate the best content that SAS to events have to offer, I wanted to share one of my all-time favorites with the one and only David Scott at Matrix Partners. For those that don't know, David is a serial entrepreneur turned VC, having founded four companies, Scott Systems, Corporate Software Europe, Watermark Software, and Silverstream Software, and did one turnaround with Zionics. And not a bad track record also. Three of the companies David founded went public, and one was acquired. And then in 2001, David joined Matrix Partners as a general partner, and David's successful exits as an investor at Matrix include HubSpot, JBoss, AppIQ, GrabCAD, OpenSpan, and Inservio just to name a few. But before we dive into what is an incredible talk with David today, you have to check out Monkey Learn. Monkey Learn allows companies to easily analyze text with machine learning. Customers like Clearbit and Segment are using Monkey Learn to turn emails, support tickets, customer feedback, and documents into actionable data, and their platform makes it super easy to classify text by topic, sentiment, or intent, or to extract specific data such as keywords, names, and companies. And Monkey Learn makes teams more efficient by automating business processes, getting insights and saving hours of manual text data processing. And if you'd like to learn more, head to monkeylearn.com forward slash Sasta and listeners of the Sasta podcast will have a very special opportunity to purchase monthly plans for half price. So check out monkeylearn.com and start getting more out of your text today. And speaking of allowing your team to do more, when you're working, do you struggle with file version control or worry about sharing sensitive files both in and outside of your organization? Well, my friends over at Ignite are solving these challenges and much more. Their industry-leading SaaS platform is reinventing the digital workplace, providing a single source of truth for all company content. And for those handling international data, Ignite fully supports GDPR compliance, helping you find and secure sensitive information to prevent harmful breaches and avoid penalties. And if you'd like to learn more about what Ignite has to offer, visit www.ignite.com forward slash That's www.egnyte.com slash Again, that's www.egnyte.com nyte.com forward slash Sasta. It really would be great for you to check that out. And another product you must check out is Prosperworks, the number one CRM for G Suite embedded into Gmail. So you can update opportunities, add contacts, get account histories, and manage your pipeline right from your inbox. And the integration is so effortless that you're up and running in hours, not months. And that, and for many other reasons, is why it's so loved by over 10,000 customers in over 100 countries and trusted by the likes of Google, MailChimp, Peugeot, and Open door, just to name a few. So check it out on prosperworks.com and make selling easier. But enough of these dulcet British tones, and I'm now thrilled to hand over to the one and only David Scott, general partner at Matrix Partners. Good. That's perfect. Okay. I think we're warmed up. If you read my blog, I think many of you will know that what I try to do is take complicated topics and make them simple. And clearly, trying to run a startup from zero to 50 couldn't be a more complicated topic. So let me see if I can do some job here of simplifying that for you. And what I want to do in order to help that is talk about the phases that I see in a startup. Uh, Because one of the key things that I've learned is a lot of startups are tempted to try to jump ahead simply to force progress to happen. And that causes a lot of damage. So by knowing where you are, it really is extremely helpful because that 
that gives you the roadmap of what you should be working on at that moment in time. Now, I think most people out there in the startup world have talked about the startup um, phases in two phases. One is the search for product market fit, and then the second one is the phase of scaling the business. And I think there's a really important third step in there, which I define as being creating a scalable and repeatable sales process that's also profitable. And it's that middle phase that I'm going to focus on the most because what I see is that most founders actually come from an engineering or a product background and aren't used to building a go-to-market machine. So this is a whole new learning for them. One thing I'd like to start with is link raising capital with the same question of what to do at each phase. And what I found in my board meetings is the most important question that I can ask that really helps a startup focus on what they have to do is to ask them to look at when they're going to run out of cash and then ask the question, are they going to be well-placed to raise the capital because they've hit the appropriate milestones? So that raises some question, what are those appropriate milestones? But let's start off here by looking at what I recommend you do, which is have a graph in your board deck which shows you when you're going to run out of cash and then step back three months from that because that's roughly how long you need to allow for fundraising. And this chart is going to likely send a shiver of alarm through you because it will give you a sense of how little time you have uh, to get everything done. And hopefully that will shock you into a series of, of thoughts about, okay, we've got a lot to do here. How are we going to get this done? And what I've discovered is that there's one way only to get things done, and that is to be really, the focus is crucial. But what do you focus on? Well, cash, let's look at cash because it's crucial to your survival. And so we want to look at these milestones that you need to effectively raise your next round. So I do talk to some founders who um, have an understanding in their minds that, well, if we looked at our last round and we raised it six months ago, we must be more valuable than then because six months have gone by. Anybody agree with that one? Uh, the answer is no. Obviously, you could have actually gone backwards in valuations. So what does cause the change in valuations? It's really hitting these crucial milestones, and that's what I want to focus on here. What are those? So to put yourselves in the mind of a venture capitalist, they think about risk. And the risk curve that I'm showing you here is a growth stage venture capitalist's way of looking at the world. They really only judge a venture as risk-free when they can see um, sales numbers that are growing and profit numbers, cash flow numbers that give them a strong sense of comfort. They're not really looking at the subtle signals there. But fortunately for you, there are also other types of investors out there. These are earlier stage investors. They're actually more capable of reading earlier stage signals, and they recognize that risk is actually gradually reducing as you're going through this journey of building a repeatable and scalable and profitable growth machine then. And fortunately for us, uh, this helps us understand valuations. As risk reduces, your valuation rises, and that gives you the opportunity uh, to recognize Again, this is how you drive that next successful fundraise is by showing progress along the search for repeatable, scalable, and profitable growth machine here. So I won't spend tons of time talking about the product market fit phase because that's really been well covered by Eric Ries and the Lean Startup Movement. But I will quickly talk about what a VC is likely to look for in the way of signals for product market fit. And these are some number of customers that are referenceable and happy that have purchased from you, paid money. And the number will be varied depending on how large your selling price is. So if you've got a $10,000 selling price, expect to have at least 10 customers. And the more, the better. If you have a smaller selling price, many more customers than that. And if you have a much higher selling price, possibly less than that, maybe five customers might do. 
But then expect to be asked to look at engagement data because are the customers really using the product is very fundamental. So the, for me, the graph that I'm going to look at is I'd like to see customer by customer by customer what happened to their usage patterns over time uh, to really make sure that the product's actually still being used by them as opposed to they purchase it and it's just gone away into being shelfware. Um, plus, are they asked, realizing the benefits of it? Are they expanding usage and are your churn numbers low? So that one, I think, is relatively straightforward. Now let's get into this more interesting stage here. So first, let me uh, outline something interesting for you. If you can get to growth stage investors, your valuation will have jumped significantly. These are the people that are out there paying the very high valuations for companies that you're all looking at and thinking, how do we get one of those to happen? So it's worth understanding what's the mindset of this investor. The mindset of them is they don't really care about the features of your product and all the stuff that you're deeply passionate about describing to them. It's got this amazing new AI and ML. They really want to see something incredibly simple, which is proof that you've created a machine where they can pop in $1 of cash, turn the crank, and get out 3 or $4 some number of years later uh, in the process there. So once you understand that, I think you can put yourself in the mode of thinking, okay, what proof points have we got to deliver to show that we've actually got this? And to me, the number one graph, the single most important graph that you can go for is this one. So this is a graph that shows your bookings, not your revenue, growing constantly quarter after quarter. And I will say that this is the easiest graph for me to put up, but the hardest graph imaginable for you guys to achieve, because uh, this is the struggle. This is what I work with with all of my portfolio companies all the time, is how do we make this happen, because uh, it's hard. So let me quickly explain something here. The word bookings is super dangerous in the SaaS world. It can be a whole load of things. So I really don't like to use it, uh, but let me define what I actually mean by it when I do use it. So in the SaaS world, uh, what's worth understanding here is if you have flat bookings, your ARR will still look good. As many of you probably know, because you may have done this yourselves, the number one chart that people love to show a VC is this ARR chart. And it's the first thing I do when I look at this is I run a division on that. And if it's a straight line, I know they've got flat bookings. What I'm looking for is really to see this. The ARR is, is going to be exponential if you've got these increasing bookings there. So get this. Let's quickly talk about the definition of, of bookings in a SaaS world. I'm looking for net new ARR, which is the combination of these three factors, new customers plus expansion revenue that came from your existing install base minus the churn that you have. And that's the most important set of numbers for you to run and manage your business on. And so what I believe is the key graph for running a SaaS business is this one. This is those three, three components summed together for the, 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 red, the thicker line in red. And I really strongly like to see every board pack have this chart. And without this, I, I cannot understand and read the business and know what's going on in it. And my recommendation would be throw a dotted line for your plan next door to each of these lines as well. So you can see whether you're on plan for new bookings or expansion bookings there. So this is a key chart, and this is, this is what's going to help you. And we want to see this red line going up quarter after quarter. So let me break this uh, phase up down into a few steps here. So the very first beginning of this is to get your early access sales done and make those customers successful. And then after that, I recommend you start focusing on finding a predictable and repeatable motion, and then try to make it scalable and lastly, work on making it profitable. And here I have to apologize because I think it was 10 years ago, I started writing about CAC and LTV. I think I was the first person in the SaaS world to do this. And I did all of you a huge disservice because I totally failed to tell you when to worry about CAC and LTV. And I made a lot of people worry about it way too early. It's no point in trying to get your LTV to CAC ratio and your time to recover CAC right and focusing on that as a desperately important thing until you've gotten a scalable and repeatable process. Because 
because it will change dramatically and you won't have enough data to really get it right there. So let's go into this a little bit uh, more detailed. If you think about the beginning of this journey, it's kind of like a forest where there's no path through it. And at the end of the journey, we have a really clear understanding of how to execute a sales motion that's repeatable to, to make a sale happen. So where would you start to create this path? Well, my starting point, I believe it's really important to pick one target market. And founders really struggle with this because they've got an opportunity to sell to maybe ExxonMobil that's in a different category to where they've been selling elsewhere. And then maybe this other big customer comes along and they're very attractive and appealing. This is super hard. But if you don't pick one target market, I'll show you in a second why you will suffer from it. But it's not just a single target market. It's actually a single use case that you need to go for as well. So you can start to think about this is the important aspect of something being repeatable because if you sell to a different use case one day and then a completely different one over here, you really haven't proven that that's something that's repeatable. And the quickest way to do that is to, to pick the single use case here. So once you have that, you can fix this messaging problem, which is really creating a message that your customers want to hear. And as most product founders, we're absolutely in love with the features that we have built into our product, and we want to talk about those. But your customers really don't care about that at all. They care about their business problem and do you solve their business problem. And you cannot message that unless you've picked this use case, because the only way that message makes any sense is to describe their use case as being the problem and then how you solve that. So you're going to take then an initial guess at what you think your sales process looks like. And what I've seen here is that many people will do this by coming to a conference like Sastra. They'll go and hear some very successful company and they'll go back and say, well, they did this. We need to do the same thing. And what's going wrong with this is we've got vendor-centric thinking about how do you want your funnel to look. And in my view, that leads to all sorts of problems. And the right way to solve the problem is to do buyer-centric uh, funnel design. And I'll give you a super quick story here. When I did my very first startup, I was a techie who um, had got, gotten himself into a business selling to architects with a nine-month sales cycle. And one day I sat down and I went and just went through putting myself in the buyer's shoes and asking, why is this taking nine months? And I can't tell you the full details because I don't have enough time, but it's a pretty fascinating story. I ran an event, and at the end of the event, something weird happened. Somebody came up to me and said, do you have an order form? I had never thought that would happen to me. So I had my assistant quickly run down and Xerox a whole bunch of hand-typed order forms. We did $4 million worth of business in one day. So this approach, I've never quite repeated that level of success, but I have had tremendous success with this approach of biocentric funnel design uh, since then with, with most people. So that's why I'm going to walk you through a little bit here. So to do this well, the next starting point for you in this journey is to build a buyer persona in detail. And I don't have time here to give you that, but the slides, when they're available, will give you the details of the questions that I like to ask to get this buyer persona built. So you can really understand how do they buy, what do they care about, what process do they have to go through internally that you can then use to define your buying process. At the end of that, my recommendation is that you have a flowchart. And the cool thing I've seen is that if you flowchart this and actually put it up on a board, you create the uh, brainstorming framework that causes ideas to flow amongst your team members about how to solve your sales cycle and get this nine months down to the one day or the shorter uh, level that you can get to. So you'll see in this here, what we're trying to do is understand the mindset of our buyer as they're going through your sales process and what are they thinking. And what we quickly realize is that they're unlikely to buy your product without looking at some other vendors out there. So why not help them by shortlisting those vendors and creating a competitive uh, features matrix? Uh, they are also going to need to probably produce an ROI for their, uh, their boss to perhaps get this thing purchased. And generally speaking, buyers are terrible at this. So can you help them by creating that ROI for them and giving them uh, something where they just put in a few inputs and you spit out a slide deck for them? 
And then do you have some special concerns that they might have, like security, where perhaps you could address those concerns by getting a third party to do an audit and uh, create a white paper, a credible white paper that you can hand them that gets rid of those concerns. One other common one is, is this a safe choice? Will I be putting myself at risk going with this startup? And the best way to address that is tons of customer stories, but sometimes even that doesn't work. And one of the answers that I've seen work really well is go and find a safe channel like an IBM or an Accenture or somebody like that to actually take the order into them. Um, and that will get around that problem for you. So I have lots of stuff on this. It's a shame to have to cut the subject short because it's such a fun subject and it's really helpful, but it's in another blog post for you. So once you've got that step done, um, fire up an initial lead source. Generally, the best one of the lot here is Google AdWords to just get some level of lead flow coming in and then start fixing with A-B testing all the things that you're starting to see are going wrong in your funnel. And one of the things that I've found is critical is to get together regularly a funnel optimization meeting and normally people have these meetings very siloed. They have the sales group and the marketing group having separate discussions. What I believe is needed in a SaaS world is to recognize that you need a growth team. And the growth team has to cross the boundaries of sales, marketing, and product, and customer success because we have to retain these customers. And so that group is the, the group that can look at this flow chart and identify these uh, funnel choke points and work on getting them solved for you. So let's quickly look at staffing here. So for the early access sales, my personal view is that the founders need to do this. And it's a mistake to go and hire salespeople before the founders have proven that they can actually sell the product. Because many times you may find that your product isn't yet ready to be sold and you will have frustrated salespeople that just aren't happy because they can't get the job done there. Once you've got some evidence that you can get some sales, um, then you want to find a predictable uh, and repeatable motion. And to do that, I'd recommend hiring a sales director. And this one of the founders is very good at sales management. And then um, add in one more sales rep so that you've got a team of two in case one of them fails to get that repeatable and predictable sales motion there. And these people are what I call Pathfinder Trailblazer reps, and I'll explain that in a second. Um, and then if they're successful, they should hire two reps to test that it's successful. And if that starts to work again, hire another two reps and then hire another two reps as you start working on scalability and profitability in that process there. So I mentioned this Pathfinder Trailblazer salesperson. Once you've got a motion that is repeatable, the last thing you want is your salespeople to be out there creating new strategies, new presentations, new pricing ideas, new people to call on. So you want a normal salesperson, but in the early days, you don't actually have that figured out. So you need a person who actually is capable of working without any of that structure and who can and figure out which target market help you to understand where in the organization to sell to, what messaging is going to work, what pricing, uh, all of those other different elements there. So it's a very different personality type to your regular salesperson there. So one cool thing about um, the, the phase after this, when you are actually starting to work on repeatable sales, is your bookings are driven by some really, really simple math. And I love it when I can simplify things to this level. The math is this. How many salespeople have you got in your team multiplied by what is the average productivity per rep? Not the quota that you've assigned them, but how much they're actually achieving. And this is pretty cool because if we drill into this here, we can see that we've got to get very good at hiring on time. And I will tell you that this is one of the most common reasons why that I've seen in my portfolio companies where they miss to plan is that they fail to hire salespeople on time. And they actually kind of think it's okay because they're saving money, but it's not okay because the whole business is not going to hit its plan. And you're going to have expenses like in your engineering department that won't be covered. 
it. So you will need to build a recruiting function and bring that in-house as soon as you hit this point of, of starting to hire salespeople and become excellent at recruiting. And that will help you with the second um, uh, piece of the thing, which is productivity per rep, because that's driven by the quality of sales hires that you make, as well as by what uh, good of a job you do with coaching, training, and onboarding. And one thing that I believe founders can do here is do a much, much better job of onboarding because uh, they actually assume that the salesperson is going to know what they know, but of course it's not true. So uh, it often will take you only as little as a couple of weekends of work to create the PowerPoints to help educate these new salespeople about your market, about the problem, about your product, etc. And that will be a very good investment that can pay back in the productivity per rep there. This is a key slide for investors, and for me in particular. This shows you your reps by quarter and shows you whether they're hitting plan or not. And what you're aiming to see is in the final column there, lots of green, where they're all above plan. And maybe I can give you a different way of thinking about this here, uh, which is if, if I'm looking at these other graphs here, I would look at how many reps are above 75% of quota. And in an ideal world, I'd like to see that at 75% or more. How many are above 100% of quota? And I'd like to see that at 50% or more. And a trend that's moving in the upward direction, because that says that you're doing a better job of onboarding, a better job of coaching. Very hard to achieve, very easy for me to say, but this is, you know, this is the challenge in this phase here. So one other key thing you need to have to drive uh, great sales is adequate lead flow for your reps. There's no point in hiring tons of reps if you don't have the right lead flow for them. And the right way to do this here is to look at your funnel backwards and figure out for a single deal to close, how many raw leads do you have to have? And then multiply that by the number of deals that have to close per rep for them to hit quota and make sure that that is being generated by marketing or your sales development reps. So this is a crucial way that you tie sales and marketing together is you create this contract with, between them. So you create the plan for what bookings you want to achieve and then marketing can compute what it has to deliver to sales in the way of marketing qualified leads to make sure sales can actually hit its plan. This is how most people um, align sales and marketing, very critical function then. So quick, quickly, some more lessons we can learn from this diagram here. First, th there are several sub-phases in this. I'm not going to run through this because I don't have too much time. But the number one mistake that I see is people jumping ahead, trying to force progress before it's really ready, particularly with VCs that are inexperienced on the board that come in and say, well, we need to hire a ton more salespeople because that's how we're going to... And they're not really looking at the fact that the product's actually not ready to be sold. It's got a major flaw. Your churn is still too high and you're losing customers. This is the wrong time to do that. So what happens when you make that mistake is you typically burn cash at a much faster rate. Flying through this here quickly because I do want to get to uh, one last thing here before I run out of time. So one thing I've learned here is that it's not predictable how long it's going to take to solve finding product market fit or, or a repeatable, scalable growth process. So that tells me that you want to save cash and keep your burn rate as low as possible during that phase. But at a certain point in time, suddenly you do flip into scaling the business phase because you've actually got it repeatable. And there's a huge mistake that I see companies make, which is they don't now start hiring salespeople fast enough because they've got to change the mindset so drastically. And I remember the board meeting at HubSpot where we told them that they had to start hiring two salespeople a month. And the incredulity on their faces that we were advising them to spend money Money finally, after they'd been in several years of not spending money. So it is a significant mind shift, and it's a definite failure point here. So I have one uh, last thing I want to do here, and so I'm going to rush a little bit here. And this is to talk about the most important thing going on right now, which is turning the product into your salesperson instead of using salespeople themselves. Because if you can take touch out of your sales process, you will dramatically lower CAC. Uh, it's literally a factor of 10x the difference between higher touch 
sales processes and lighter touch sales processes. And the way to do that is with the salesperson. Sorry, with the, the product as your salesperson. So I like to think about what is your time to wow in your product? And wow is interesting to define. So the full wow is the moment where your customer's seen enough proof in your product demonstration to know exactly that this is something that they're willing to spend money on and pay for. But there could be a mini wow where they see something cool that keeps them motivated and excited about your product, but still not yet ready to buy. So with that, we should look at how many steps does it take them, how much time does it take them, and how much friction is involved, and then remove the steps and friction. And to really bring this to life, I want to use one of my portfolio companies called Salsify as an example. And I need to quickly give you a quick sense of what Salsify does to explain this. So they I'd like you to think about yourselves as an e-commerce shopper going to a website like B&H. When you look at this uh, product entry, there's a bunch of crucial things here like videos and descriptions and features and things like that that are needed before you would actually buy this. And it turns out that these uh, elements are actually very hard for the brands, Nikon in this case, to assemble. And then once they have assembled them, they struggle to actually export them to each portal because B&H wants it in a completely different format to Amazon, to Adorama, and to, to Best Buy. So Salsify solves that problem. So let's look at their free trial experience here. They had a sign-up process, and then what they did was they created a sandbox for the demo. So they couldn't actually put you live into the demo after you did the thing. So you had to wait for an email with that thing notification that the sandbox was ready. Then you went into that, you opened up the app, and you had to learn the user interface for it. And as soon as you saw that user interface, you now had to locate content to bring into this, which was difficult um, because that generally came from different third parties in your organization. And then lastly, to get the full wow moment, the most powerful thing that Salsify could do would be to show you that you can drive new revenue. And it would do that by letting you export to a brand new retailer and get you online with a new channel. So quite hard to do that too because you need a contract with specially agreed pricing things for that new, new retailer. So let's look at what we did then. So starting point was this uh, horrible looking landing page where you had lots of fields in it and not really very appealing. And then after that, you got to have to wait for the email before you were actually able to start the trial. And then when you got into the trial, here's a complicated product that's got a blank UI. Is this at all inviting or friendly? No, not really at all. So let's go back and um, see uh, what we have to do here. So all of the red boxes are high friction boxes where there's no payback for the customer and, and just work involved for them to do. So the first thing we did was get rid of this need to wait for the portal to be ready. So you sign up and get dumped into a redesigned page that, that has a single field in it. And that single field just requires your email and encourages you with some stories of other people that have successfully used the product uh, to get you going. And then you land directly in the app, but it's still a blank app. So it leaves a problem of how do you import the content and what to do with it. So the next thing they did was they worked on uh, this problem and they realized, okay, we can solve this by giving them some sample data to play with. So now... Um, you would arrive inside of Salsify and see the option to at least explore some sample data to see how this thing works. But it leaves you with another risk, which is this product is hard to navigate. It's a sophisticated product, and there's a good chance that they won't find their path through to WoW. So the next thing they did was they added in a product called AppQues to help guide the navigation to make sure that they found the right appropriate place in the, the demo to get to the WoW. And that created a 3x uh, uplift in conversion after they'd done those steps. But the, the, the real problems were still left behind, which is how do they sign up a new retailer? So a cool thing happened here. We looked around and we found that Google had a new product offering. It's actually called Google Shopping. And Google Shopping, in order for it to work, 
when you go in and, and type in DSLR camera, it gives you a way of searching through products. It's their attempt to stop you from going to Amazon to search for products. And it needs you to export to Google in a very specialized format. So it's like another portal for another retailer. So what these guys were able to do was add in an export button to export to Google and immediately give all of their customers an instantaneous new channel that they never had before that drove new sales for them. So this was a cool solution to this problem of cutting out the need to go and navigate and negotiate a new deal with a new retailer. It's still left the last remaining problem area, which is a very painful thing where you have to go and get content from multiple different people in the organization that can often take months. So they had another brainstorming session and realized that they could solve that problem by going out and actually scraping the content from the web off of existing retailers like B&H or Amazon and immediately pre-populate the system so that the moment you land in the system, you've gotten um, some data that you can see there. And if you look at what we've done here, we took that very complex process that was filled with reasons why they would never get to WOW, and we've shortened it up to sign up. Your data is immediately populated inside of this app, and you can instantly hit the publish to Google button and get yourself some new sales that you've never had before. So hopefully, this is just gives you a way of thinking, a mindset of thinking about putting yourself in your buyer's mind as they're going through the journey of navigating your free trial, navigating your whole sales process, and how you can optimize that. So quick last summary for you here. Uh, recognize where you are in the life cycle and don't try to force getting ahead uh, of where you are at this point in time. Um, avoid underfunding. This is a common mistake. Make sure you've got enough cash to get to the key milestone that you need for that next fundraise. And use those cash out and financing milestones to drive focus and alignment in your organization. So thank you very much indeed. I apologize for having run over, but I really appreciate all of you coming to sit here. As always, so fantastic to hear from David. And I want to say a huge thanks to him for giving up the time to do that. And if you want to see more from David, which I highly, highly recommend, then you must check out his blog, forentrepreneurs.com. That really is incredible. Likewise, we'd love to see you behind the scenes here at Sasta. You can find us on Instagram at hstebbings1996. It'd be fantastic to see you there. But before we leave you today, you must check out Monkey Learn. Monkey Learn allows companies to easily analyze text with machine learning. Customers like Clearbit and Segment are using Monkey Learn to turn emails, support tickets, customer feedback, and documents into actionable data, and their platform makes it super easy to classify text by topic, sentiment, or intent, or to extract specific data such as keywords, names, and companies. And MonkeyLearn makes teams more efficient by automating business processes, allowing you to get insights and saving hours of manual text data processing. And if you'd like to learn more, then head over to monkeylearn.com forward slash Sasta, and listeners of the Sasta podcast will have a very special opportunity to purchase monthly plans for half price. So check that out on Monkey learn.com and start getting more out of your text today. And speaking of getting more from your team, when you're working, do you struggle with file version control or worry about sharing sensitive files both in and outside of your organization? Well, my friends over at Ignite are solving these challenges and much more. Their industry-leading SaaS platform is reinventing the digital workplace, providing a single source of truth for all company content. And for those handling international data, Ignite fully supports GDPR compliance, helping you find and secure sensitive information to prevent harmful breaches and avoid penalties. And if you'd like to learn more about what Ignite has to offer, visit www.ignite.com forward slash Sasta. That's www.egnyte.com slash Sasta. Again, that's www.egnyte.com forward slash Sasta. It really would be great for you to check that out. And another product you must check out is ProsperWorks, the number one CRM for G Suite, embedded into Gmail, so you can update opportunities, add contacts, 
contacts, get account histories, and manage your pipeline right from your inbox. And the integration is so effortless that you're up and running in hours, not months. And that, and for many other reasons, is why it's so loved by over 10,000 customers in over 100 countries and trusted by the likes of Google, MailChimp, Peugeot, and Opendoor, just to name a few. So check it out on prosperworks.com and make selling easier. As always, we so appreciate all your support and cannot wait to bring you some phenomenal episodes next week.